Locked on NBA for your Thursday edition of the Daily Show. I'll sit down with ESPN's Kevin Arnovitz for a basketball philosophy conversation on the value of defense, when the mid-ranges are right, and what he would do instead of the NBA draft. First, we'll look at last night's action and the implications of the playoffs. It's all coming up on Locked on NBA. You are locked on the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello, I'm David Locke, host of Locked on NBA, Locked on Jazz, founder of Locked on Podcast Network. ESPN's Kevin Arnovitz is going to join us today to talk about the value of defense, when the mid-range shot matters, some good philosophical conversation. But let's run through a few things last night. Quick run-through of last night's action is all these guys have done a, such a great job on the daily version of this podcast. Tomorrow, you'll have Adam Mattis and Anthony Irwin for you. Thanks to Wes and Dave, Jake and John, and Josh Lloyd for their great shows. All right, uh, Raptors, DeMar DeRozan with an incredible dunk, and they extend their lead uh, over... Boston with a 121-119 overtime win in Detroit last night. DeMar DeRozan is all over the internet. I'm sure you'll see it. It Implication on this one, Raptors holding on to that one seed even more tightly and Detroit further out of the playoffs. The Rockets remarkably on the back end of a back-to-back, one up 20 at one point last night against Milwaukee with a 110-99 win over the Bucks, 17 straight for the Rockets. There's no question anymore of whether or not they are a legitimate threat to the Golden State Warriors. Pelicans win in Sacramento, 114-101. Anthony Davis does leave the game with a sprained ankle in that one. Cleveland wins in Denver, 113-108. LeBron James scores the final nine points, outdueling Nikola Jokic in an incredible finish. LeBron went vintage LBJ last night. Cleveland takes a game and a half lead over the Pacers for the third spot in the East. Nuggets currently out of the Western Conference playoff picture, or at least tied with the Clippers. With the Jazz, with the Clippers behind them, and the tiebreaker against the Jazz would kick in. Jazz won in Indiana last night, a 20 point win over the Pacers, 104 84. As the Jazz defense since January 19th, when Rudy Gobert returned, continues to be dramatically better than anyone else in the NBA. Three points better than the Raptors, who have the second best defense, and five points better per 100 possessions than the third best defense in the NBA in that span. So the standings. Cleveland holds on to that third spot in the Eastern Conference right now as Indiana was knocking on their door last night. And Indiana, with the loss, is now tied with Washington for home court of that 4-5 series with Philadelphia just a game behind. Over in the West, the right now the Jazz and the Nuggets are tied with the Clippers. Clippers percentage points ahead for 8th. Jazz and the Nuggets are at ninth. Jazz have won 16 of 18 and are now finally out of 10th. Those tied for ninth, and would lose the tiebreaker. So I guess in a sense they're back to 10th. Clippers have the advantage because they've played two fewer games, but all those teams are tied in games behind. Thunder are sitting at 7. Minnesota's back on the floor tonight after five nights off, and they play Boston. All right, that is a quick recap of what happened last night in the NBA. Thursday night schedule coming for you tonight, and Adam Modis and uh, Anthony Irwin will recap that for you tomorrow on Locked in NBA, but let's get to our steam guest of ESPN. So, as a flummoxed basketball mind, who out there can help me out? Kevin Pelton will just mock me. Rob Mahoney's really smart. That's a possibility. Oh, 
the great soothsayer of Los Angeles, Kevin Arnovitz, will help me with my basketball flummoxation that I have right now. How are you, sir? Is that like Sybil the soothsayer from Network? Maybe. Maybe very much so. I don't know. I feel like you, when I, I have there are things going on in the game right now, I'm trying to figure out, and you'll tell me if I'm way off base or if there's something to my thoughts. Well, let's have it. All right. So the first one I'm experiencing every day, and we're seeing it in Oklahoma City, is the value of defense. So if James Harden is on the floor and the Rockets are 10 points better offensively when he's off the floor, and if Victor Oladipo is 8 points better offensively when the Pacers are on and off, and if Steph, we, we all get that, right? We all understand that with Jimmy Butler's influence in, Miami, in Minnesota. We get that. Andre Robertson stops playing for the Oklahoma City Thunder. They can't defend anymore. They've gone from the number two defensive team to the number 17 defensive team. Rudy Gobert comes back in Utah, and they're holding people under a defensive rating every night of under 100. They've done that in 15 of the last 18 games. So when we think of the most impactful offensive player, James Harden, Steph Curry on the offense, and we all get that value. What's the is the value of the best defensive player, Andre Robertson, Rudy Gobert, the same impact as Steph and James Harden? Right. So, so I, I think that it's a great mystery, which is how we we've, we've all heard that it is not impossible to quantify defense. It's just very difficult. But we've got metrics, and we many of them conform to our eye test. I mean, one, one of the things I've enjoyed about Real Plus Minus um, since Ben Alomar and our team introduced it at ESPN is just one thing I've appreciated is how much it actually confirms the eye test, right? Like, like the, the, the metric doesn't know from the people with the good reputations, yet there are players that routinely are at the top of that real plus minus defensive list year in, year out that look exactly like what the, the list you and I would draw up as, as, as uh, regular NBA observers as the guys who are really good on defense, right? I mean, Ro- Robertson, to your point on this list is like, leaps and bounds above the next group of shooting guards, which include guys like Jimmy Butler and Danny Green and Victor Oladipo, who we imagine, particularly in the case of Butler and Green. Um, so I've always, like you, I have trouble negotiating this question, which is, okay, this being the case, is it possible that Andre Robertson is the James Harden of defense, that, that actually when we talk about the 15 best players, we'd be completely remiss to exclude a guy like that has every bit the impact on defense that these uh, superstar players have on offense. And, and should we be starting to talk about, you know, guys like that or, um, you know, in, in Draymond's case and Kawhi's case, they're already kind of impactful offensive players, but, but let's just isolate these kind of defensive specialists. And the conclusion I always come to that's not founded is that defensive impact is very, very, very important, perhaps as important as offensive impact but it's not as reliably consistent. Like, you and I can both say next season, health uh, notwithstanding, you and I could probably come up with the list a year in advance of probably seven of the ten most efficient offensive players, right? Like, we know right off the bat. Let's, let's for argument's sake, say that, that real plus minus is absolutely the end-all, be-all. Uh, adjusted real plus minus is, is the end-all, be-all of metrics. It actually is the code that we have cracked, Right. 
let's just for argument say that. You and I could probably right now name seven of the ten top ten offensive players from the 2018-2019 uh, season, right? I don't know that we can do it for defense, right? Like oh, the I elasticity of people's defensive ratings. In other words, you know, there are years where Jay Crowder was, a, you know, and, and maybe it's because defense is so situational where, hey, we know that for offensively because we know their hearts are going to get the ball and it can be in control of the ball. We know that LeBron's going to be in control of the ball. We know AD, if he's healthy, is in control of the ball. Whereas defense is so dependent, even individual defense is still dependent on systems that are not governed by the individuals themselves. And so we know they'll be pretty good. But So I think maybe the answer is, is hey, defense is every bit as important individually as offense. The problem is, unlike offense, which is predictive, and which is very much dependent on having the ball in your hands, Decent, individual defensive performance is still contingent on so many other things other than individual effort and technique and footwork and all those things. You wouldn't put your mortgage – well, you're in L.A., so you might not have a mortgage. Um, oh, no, I have a mortgage. Okay. I mean, you know, when I'm talking – I live in Utah. When I'm talking about a mortgage, mine's much smaller than talking about an L.A. mortgage. You wouldn't put your mortgage – on Philadelphia and Utah being top five defensive teams next year with Joel Embiid and Rudy Gobert? I mean, I would put a little bit. I would put, like, maybe, like, like the tax <laughs> payment and the hazard insurance and, like, maintenance. <laughs> you know, because I think, I think it's, a, it's a good bet. I mean, but, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I think, like, we know. And, but they, wait, wait, wait. But they, we're, we're talking about two different things now. I think team is different than individual, Right. And, I mean, a perfect example, and we, I think you and I have talked about this. Like, how is it that Kyrie Irving, a guy we were all certain was just terrible at defense, is the point guard? I mean, arguably, after kind of the big man, the most important defender in a league that, by the way, the wing defenders aren't many, like, kind of wing attackers anymore. Like, it's, it's fair to say in a pick-and-roll league, the point guard should be as predictive of team defense, the quality of the defensive point guard, to overall team defense. And, I mean... I didn't have that, did you? I mean, it was kind of in like Ray Allen kind of before, you know, 10 years ago when he came over from Seattle from one of the worst defenses in the history of the NBA, that Seattle team he came from, a guy we were certain wasn't a good defender. And, like, now he becomes one of the primary wing defenders along with Paul Pierce, who never had a reputation for defense. It was kind of old and chunky, not old, slow, chunky, you know, at least we perceived him to be. And yet this, these become the two wings and the most devastating team defense ever. So, I mean, to your point, yeah, okay, Philadelphia, Utah. But, like, why? I mean, what does that tell us about the individuals? Is it because we just know there's a culture and a system and a scheme and that Gobert will anchor it and Embiid will kind of anchor it and Ben Simmons has a wingspan of 17 feet, and so that's hard to deal with. I mean, is it individual? Is it a, is it, are you saying that because it's, the, it's, a, it's an accumulate, an aggregate of good def, individual defenders or just that, hey, it's a team that kind of gets it? Like, is defense this sort of shared brain experience? Um, and you could almost argue that for offense, too. I mean, I, I think something about Bill, Mike D'Antoni's offense is kind of make mediocre offensive players good offensive players. But, I mean, that's why defense is so hard. I, but you couldn't tell me right now who the 10 D defensive RPM guys will be next year, can you? No problem. Maybe one or two of them. Yeah, no problem. In regards to – and I, I try not to be too jazz-centric. Obviously, I watch them every night. Um, the last two – the, the stretch we're in right now where the Jazz have won 16 of 18 is I, is incredibly eye-opening to me. Like, I'm trying to grasp yes. it. It doesn't – you look at the Jazz roster, there's no way that team should win 16 of 18. What's – No. In our 
what, what's interesting to me is the Rockets have won 16 of 18, maybe 16 straight, or the war, and everyone just says they're good. What everyone says about the Jazz is, well, they're hot. Are they? Or is what's really happened is the best defensive team in the league, because Rudy Gobert's back, is more dominant defensively over the last 21 games than the Rockets' offenses. If you take, if you look at per right. average, like I'm geeking out here, but the average offensive rating for the last 20 games is 107. The Jazz defense is 97. The Rockets' offense is 115. So the Rockets' offense is eight points above average. The Jazz defense is ten points above average. So Rudy Gobert anchored defense is actually more or, or further better than average than the Rockets' offense right now. Like, okay, well then why is it that the Jazz are hot? Maybe the Jazz are just good. I don't know. I'm, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I'm having a hard time with this concept because it's blowing my mind to watch every team put out their fifth worst offensive night of the year against the Jazz. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't necessarily know what to make. I mean, as a team, I mean, on one hand, to those who would say they're hot, is is it sustainable to have Gobert, Jarebko, you know, Crowder, Howell Neto, and I think Royce O'Neal on the floor last night for a 15 to two run to start the fourth? Like, I mean, I suppose you could take that team to war and and expect them to kind of play Warriors basketball over the course of a season. And it's no insult, individual insult to those guys who I you know I think are no. Let me all, let, let know, me interrupt you. Wonderful I, players in their own right, Kevin. Let me interrupt you. I think this is the be- let's just dig into this because I think this is the best point of all. You're absolutely right. What you just said seems crazy. The idea that with Howell Neto, Royce O'Neal, Jay Crowder, Jonas Jerebko, and Rudy Gobert, you can go on a 15-2 to run against a team that's winning 65% of their games when healthy. Ingles might have been on the floor then, too, okay. I think. Now, um, I, I, I'm getting my guys mixed up. Jere- yeah. Jerebko, and I can look it up on Popcorn, but Jerebko, we could debate, but the other guys are all plus defenders. Royce O'Neal's yeah. great. Royce O'Neal's the best yeah. non-talked-about defender in the league. I mean, he's great. Jay Crowder. Neto works. I don't, is, is, is Neto a plus defender? Yeah, I think so, just because he executes and plays hard. Yeah. I mean, not because he's, like, wowing you with... Oh, I, I, I don't have a, a dog. I, have, I really haven't... Honestly, I've spent precious little time in my life thinking about the quality of defense individually that Howell Neto plays. So, I mean, I, I have no dog in the fight. All right, so 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 let's go to that. Let's. I didn't want to interrupt. I just wanted to make sure we clarify. So, how is that possible? Well, I mean, all right, so so one would say, okay, that that's like three and a half minutes of basketball. So if ever we're playing small sample size theater, it's I mean, what is three and a half minutes of basketball in a game? Last night, what had about ninety six possessions? I mean, you you tell me, but what are we talking about eight possessions each way? So if ever uh, you know you want to play that small sample size theater game, that that would be it, right? So that, that it isn't sustainable, and you know, show me over the court that, that a lot of things can happen in seven round trip possessions. You can see a lot of crazy things. You can cherry pick. You know the best run possible, but no, I, I'm, I'm with you. And, and listen, we forget the Boston Celtics of the kind of big three era. Were they ever above an average offensive team? I mean, you know, there might actually be a prototype here that we're talking about this championship quality. I mean, I, I, and I have to go back and maybe we can you know, pull it up right now. But what were what were the oh uh, nine? I mean, what was the oh eight oh nine Celtics? I mean, what were they ranked? An offensive efficiency, and, I, and I, let's not do points because it's so relative now. But let's see ranking. Um, no, they were six that year. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm imagining some world where they they weren't all that good offensively. Uh, they were 13th the next year when they KG got hurt, and then um, 09 
yeah, 10-11 when they played, they were 18th actually when they played the Heat for the conference final. Kevin Arnovitz is our guest from ESPN. He does great work. Part two of this debate that has me wondering who's the most impactful player in the NBA. All right, so let's do part two of this debate. If Rudy Gobert's impact on defense, and Joel Joel Embiid probably is going to end up being the answer to this question, but is equal to that of Steph Curry and James Harden's offensive impact, then is Rudy Gobert's impact offensively more than Steph Curry and James Harden's impact defensively? And then... If you're getting into who impacts the 160 possessions that are on the floor a night more, who is it? All right, so this is a tough one because, and again, I'm just using NBA RPM, real plus minus. Again, not because I feel like it is the preeminent end-all be-all, but I'm using it because it is a metric that takes into account both sides of the floor um, and makes those measurements and calibrates them to – important variables that aren't fixed, like who else is on the floor. And what's so interesting about the stat is, again, and and one reason I like it is because it does confirm eye tests when it comes to defense. Like, I'm just year in and year out, as I said. It's just, it's very impressive how it just intuitively knows, you know, despite not giving any sort of narrative, you know, influence. It has Rudy is like, by far and away, the best defensive center, which confirms what we we know, right? And and Joel's up there among the the starting guys. It's Gobert, Whiteside, uh, Embiid, interestingly enough. Um, you know, Nurkic would be next in Capella and then Ekbe Udo. Um, so, but for whatever reason, when you put them all together, right, when they actually do just overall RPM, which takes into account both, the guys at the top tend to be the offensive players. Like, other than Embiid, it's Chris Paul, James Harden, Steph Curry, Jimmy Butler, who's a two-way player, admittedly, Victor Oladipo, who I, I, we are now, if you look at the numbers, and actually what Indiana's done in the last two months as a defensive team, I think like sixth, despite the the fact that they played horribly last night, um, you know, you kind of have the usual suspects that you would expect in an offensive list. Like, you know, Damian is number 17, uh, and that includes a lot of bench players, so you're probably higher than that. Uh, Carl Anthony Towns is up there, even though we, we, we've not been impressed with this defense individually. Uh, Nikola Jokic, who we're told is a defensive liability, um, is, uh, you know, is up there. So what's interesting about that metric is that when you aggregate offense and defense, somehow, you know, conforming to popular perception, it's really the offensive guys who end up rising up that list, provided that they obviously a terrible defensive rating will bring them down. But by and large, it is a lot of what we would call the convention. In other words, I think the correlation between the top of the list offensively is, is, is far greater to the overall list than the top of the list defensively. And can you explain to me what does that mean? And uh, yeah, can you explain to me why? I'm t- I mean, I think I get it, but I, that's been my question: is why? Um, I, I mean, so, so it's unfounded. Like, all right, so we we can make the argument that we will tolerate, um, you know, a, a guy perceived as a defensive stopper. We can we can tolerate a very poor off. Well, so, you know, actually, I'm, I'm actually this would be the contrary. I, mean, I was about to say. Hey, if a guy plays good enough offense, we can tolerate a terrible defensive rating, which would mean to suggest there should be a lot of guys on there whose offensive ratings are canceled out by the terrible defense. Whereas if you don't achieve a base level of 
of offense, you really can't, quote, stay on the floor in this day and age. And, and look, there's always been arguments about Robertson, right, before he got injured. I mean, there, you know, the, the, there, there are a lot of people you and I trust and in, in, in love and whose acumen we respect immensely who have always said, hey, you can't keep Robertson on the floor in a playoff series. You can't keep Tony Allen on the floor circa 2013-14-15. Remember that Memphis Golden State series? You can't, quote, keep him on the floor. And that if a guy can't be guarded – um, but that would run counter to our theory because that would mean, okay, if there are a lot of guys on this playing these big minutes who are defensive stalwarts um, and we demand a certain level of offense in a way we've never demanded a certain level of defense, we'll let any great score on the floor, even if he's a liability. Um, you know, that would seem to suggest that it should be the opposite, that somehow this list is populated with offensive players. Now, it might be that RPM, do they factor in more O than D? I mean, is there like a, I don't think it's 50 do we add them up together? I mean, I, that that would be something for a question for Ben Alomar, right? Is is are there are, are the are the, are the grades weighted so that O RPM is a greater um, share of your grade? I don't I don't think that's the case, but it could be. Maybe it's just as simple, and then we'll move on to that. Sensory wise, just our emotion when Tony Allen misses a shot, it's more painful to us than the thrill we get of Tony Allen stopping someone. Maybe it's just that simple. Right. All right. Here's the other one that I was watching. The Rockets actually played a close game once. Um, it only happened once. And I noticed that all of a sudden, in the final few minutes of the game, Chris Paul started shooting mid-range jumpers. And I'm wondering if Daryl Morey has a money ball thing here that if you're going to play 100 possessions, the three has value. But if I'm playing you one-on-one right now, Kevin, it doesn't matter if I score a three or a two if first basket wins. Right? Right. So where is and this the, is kind of the final shot down one right, scenario, yeah. right? Or we're tied. Like it doesn't matter now. Like now we're there's no money ball positive of shooting a three if it's ninety ninety all with twelve seconds left and we're taking a final shot. So, but if there's a hundred possessions in a game, we understand the value of three. It counts fifty percent more than a two. Where's the number? Is it four possessions left? Is it three possessions left? Is it fourteen possessions left? Where the mid range jumper begins to suddenly have value again. Because that's a very good question. Go, it does go. I, I'm in. not. I don't know that I have the advanced kind of math understanding to know when there's this law of whatever the opposite of the law of diminishing returns is, or maybe it's the law of diminishing returns with relative to the three. In other words, that the more like is it, is it a question as you say the more binary question of will you hit this shot or not? Forget the value of the shot. Will you get points on the board? Become greater than. Well, hey, we're playing an aggregate of 100 possessions here, and you know threes are better than twos, and you can miss a few more threes. Right to your point, like do you there? I think, and it is emotionally. Doesn't it feel like to your point when you're watching a game where it's like, look, we just need to score here, right? Right. Like don't don't, don't talk to me three versus we we need to score because if we score, then you know the treadmill speeds up for the other team. We we create more that in the last few minutes of the game, there's this notion that right, you just want to that that distance from tie to lead is, is, is the most important thing. So just get points on the board. And if a two, you know, is a, is a greater probability than three. And, and that, 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 that's my instinct. So I think you and I share this. I don't know. In fact, I mean, a good question would be is what is, you know, what does Chris shoot from mid-range at two? I think he's a pretty high percentage yeah, he's, he's the mid-range best shooter from two. He's the best in the league. Like last year, he was the best in the league. I think he was close to 50%. Yeah. So, because because where uh, what does he shoot? What do we know? Do we know what he shoots? Uh, I can look it up right now, and uh, yeah, uh, I'll look it up. While because the the one I talk about all the time on our broadcasts, the difference between five and seven point leads is everything. A seven point lead 
means that you have to get they have to go down and score three times while you don't score two times. A five point lead can go away in three possessions. It's a huge difference between five and seven on your win probability at that point. It really any time it lasts two two and a half minutes in a game, and so I that's where I'm wondering if there's some math game that they're playing with the mid range jumper. Chris Paul this year is at forty. from 10 to 16 feet, 57% from 16 to 3 feet, to the three-point line, excuse me. Am I correct? Am I looking at this shot chart? He is 15 for 17 from, like, the top, the little top of the key region on the, between basically the three-point line and the, uh, and essentially the foul line? Yeah, from 10 feet to three-point, he's 100 of 199, so he's basically 50%. So there's a, so, like, if you're, if you're up five... Right, you're up five with two twenty left. There might be some math that says go shoot the two, because if you go up seven now over a two minute period of time for them to tie the game, that you they've got to score three times and you've got to not score twice. And if you run out the shot clock, like there, there's so I, there's some point in here where I can convince that Daryl Morey has given Chris Paul the mid range green light. Well, I mean. Now, you can play this game again, which is, okay, that's one possession. But would we agree that, hey, you've got, let's say, three possessions in that two minutes to 45 seconds. And I, I'm, I'm, bear with it. Those, a three possession sequence. Right. So is there a greater value? Because now, all right, there are three possessions. Uh, if you go two for three from, you know, you go two for three from the field, two-point land, that's four points. You go, you know, obviously, two for three from three, that's six points, but only one for three, you're still at three points. And maybe that extra point is worth something. I, I still think it's – I mean, my here's my guess. My guess is you and I are being irrational, that actually the rules that govern the game for 97 possessions still govern them for the last three uh, within within reason, right? Like if you're a final possession down one, obviously it doesn't matter, right? You're, you're playing – you know, for uh, the, the final shot, but that by and large, I'm guessing that it might be a degree of irrationalism where that feeling of we just need to score seems right, but actually, hey, it, it, the laws that govern scoring don't change, and that and again, unless you're in a very rare situation of last shot down one, you want to get points on. Yeah, you, you that actually, you're probably still better off going for the three. All right. Because um, think about it. If you're one for three from three, it's still your three. You know, I mean, yeah. it's the same math that works. It just it seems more dire. and It seems like the emotional lift of scoring on a possession. We got points. Um, and, and in fact, let me hear. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel in a in a, situ- in a tight game situation where your team scores a two? Would you feel fifty percent better if they scored a three? <laughs> My guess is you'd only feel about 10 to 15% better, right? Because, hey, we got to score. Just getting the points on the board was the most important thing. Even though you should feel 50% better in three versus two, you don't because points on the board. Interesting. And so that points on the board, irrational points on the board feeling is probably guiding you. It's not to say that I'm going to question Chris Paul's shot selection. And, hey, when a guy is 50% from two and in certain spots, clearly, and my guess is Chris probably calibrates it. I, I suspect he probably takes his most confident best shots getting – if he takes the two because he is such a great distributor it's because he feels like, you know, it, it's one on the higher end of his probability range. But you know what I'm saying? I, I think there probably is still some irrationalism being all right, final one with Kevin Arnovitz involves the draft. I 
I do not mind tanking. I don't. I think it's a micro versus macro, but it's clear argument. In other words, everyone says they're not trying to win today, but they're actually trying to win later, and that's really all you want. Fan bases, I think, individually are all fine with it. It's clear to me that uh, Adam Silver's not fine with it, that the gambling influence is coming, and I think the draft as we know it is in serious jeopardy because the new changes aren't going to make a difference. You do not believe in the draft. If I have now put you in front of Adam Silver... He is on the. He's got a redo the draft committee. Kevin Arnovitz is now presenting no draft. Why? Um, I mean, so I, I have various reasons for this that range from kind of fairness and uh, you know which would to be as succinct as possible that young talented people should have the right to do what you and I did out of college, and I wasn't even that talented. I was actually uniquely untalented, which is. You get to go, you get to negotiate where you want to work, for whom, with whom, and you get to consider where you want to live. And anybody graduating MIT in engineering or, you know, this, that, or the other gets to choose. And and why do these knives got to choose? Why do they get assigned? And, and, and assigned in kind of the worst and most cynical way. In fact, the better they are and the more talented are, the more likely it is they go play for the crappiest company in the crappiest place, governed by the biggest idiots. Um, who have demonstrated by virtue of the fact that they're getting the opportunity that they don't know how to harness talent, right? I mean, so there's that argument, which is just a basic labor fairness. Forget incentive structures or anything else, right? Let's just let's just talk about, like, like it's not about us. It, and, and to those who it's about fans, no, no, no. It, these, these, are, these are young men who have worked their lives to get to a point, and, and I'm not going to say that it's a, it's a terrible outcome in life to make $6 million playing for the Sacramento Kings, um, but I think by and large, I just believe in fairness, and and, um, and I kind of like the EPL model, uh, which has been the most successful sports league in the world, and um, so there's that issue. There's the incentive structure, which is like, I just don't believe, I just think that you don't furnish, you know, bad teams that are, you know, with the best talent. Like I, you know, it, it, it always burns me a little bit that like, you know, over, like, you know, to me, the Indiana Pacers deserve a much higher pick this year than the Sacramento Kings. Right. Like, um, and I'm, I'm picking on Sacramento. I realize or, or the Orlando magic, right? Here's Orlando. They've had time after time after time in the last five or six years. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not going to call anyone an idiot, but the bottom line is, is like enough. The Indiana Pacers, you and I, what did you have them winning this year? I mean, right. Like twenty some odd games. I mean, I had them. I, I mean, I looked at that roster. Blah, blah. They overachieved. Like, if anything, they should be rewarded with a better selection of talent. Um, but more than anything, I just kind of believe that companies should have to pitch the players. Like, I just believe that there should be some. You don't just get the talent. You have to earn the talent. And I don't think failing is earning. And uh, and I think in a salary, people are like, well, then everybody would just go play for. New York or, well, really? Because I see the New York Knicks top market is, you can't even get a meeting with LaMarcus Aldridge anymore. You can, no one wants to play there. You know, oh, well, then everyone's going to congregate with LeBron. Really? You're the best young wing talent of your generation, and you're going to take how many shots so you can go, quote, play with LeBron, whereas you could go over here and to a system that's more amenable to you and, and make more money because, by the way, there's no cap room over there. You have to take the rookie minimum. Like, I don't believe it for a second. So I, mean, it, I think these these uh, these boogeymen that are always presented, well, if there was no draft, everybody would congregate together. Everybody would play in New York. Everybody would play with LeBron. I just think it's false. It just displays a fundamental misunderstanding of, of what goes on 
when you know young people pick places to work. I mean, I've always liked National Match, which is how medical residents are placed coming out of medical school, where there's still a draft per se. Like teams get to rank the candidates coming out of med school they want in order, and then the candidates themselves get to rank. And what happens is the most elite institutions and talent tend to um, you know, are awarded that there's considerations and we could introduce a criteria by which, hey, if you do have a need as a franchise, if we want to say, hey, you're a rough luck franchise, you know, you could get a little leg up, but then the algorithm kind of produces these matches and it's considered the most efficient labor system, labor system in the world in terms of, of, of matching talent with, with, um, with entities. I mean, it is sort of among labor economists, it is considered national matches. And I think it actually be a lot of fun. And, and so now, you know, the Spurs get to go and make their pitch. The Jazz get to go and make their pitch. I mean, the Jazz are another team that's going to be a hard luck. Like, I'm sorry, the Jazz are just never going to be terrible under this regime. Like, when you continue to have good management and, like, good draft picks and come up with the Rudy Gobert's of the world at the end of the first round and the Donovan Mitchell's in the middle and the Joe Ingles off the scrap heap, and the hollow natos from God knows where, like you're just going to not stink. And I just feel like, despite the fact that the market is not desirable to many free agents, and I don't say that as an insult to Salt Lake, it's just a fact. Like that's a team that gets punished. And why? Because they basically get punished for their sick. They get punished for overachievement and get to pick behind teams that have, who's frankly, whose lot in life is no worse than theirs. I mean, you know. But or just by virtue of terrible ownership or bad management or poor decision-making or a lack of investment in infrastructure. And, it, and it's not like it happens once. Every single year, the Jazz pick behind the Orlando Magic and the Sacramento Kings. And until recently, the Minnesota Timberwolves, who just by virtue of the fact that at a certain point when you just endow a team with so much ridiculous talent, eventually they're going to do something. You know? And it's just like, it's, you know, I just think it's silly. And who's getting screwed? The small markets are getting screwed. Utah is getting screwed by this system. You know, Portland that never tanks, you know, except like one year. You know, they, they get, you know, they, they're supposed to win 27 four years ago. Instead, they went 44. Oh, we'll take away your draft position for, for overperforming your expectation by 17 games. Like, they're a small market. Why? They pick behind the Knicks? Are you kidding me? You know? So my point is, is I just don't buy any of the other arguments. So anyway, that's my rant for today. I love it. Kevin Artovich, you're the best. That's it. I got nothing to build on it. Just can, I, can I rant one more about the Chicago Bulls situation? Sure. And I did it a little bit on the jump yesterday. Why is the league getting in the business of legislating lineups? Like, why is a league telling a team that spent four years and $32 million on Cristiano Felicio? By the way, we can question the wisdom of that, but the fact is they did this kid is going to have to play for them. But the league is going to come in and intervene and say, no, you can't play him before a center in Robin Lopez, who I think we're all, you know, Robin Lopez has his virtues. He's a nice ball player. Because why? Because you might lose if you, I mean, like, so in other words, you're supposed to play all the veterans that will have no place on your roster in two years when you're actually trying to contend. By no means should you develop this player who has clearly not figured out how to play center in the NBA, yet is on the hook for $32 million. You know, clearly you must play Justin Holiday over David Nwaba. By the way, never mind that David Nwaba has a true shooting percentage of 58 point something and Justin's down in, you know, the low 50s. Like, by the way, what is the league, is the league implying that what an insult to David Nwaba. 
to come out and say, you're trying to lose by playing David Wallace. What do you think that, how dare they insult that player? Like, so, and I know here's what probably happened. My guess is, like, somebody in some other team that is not trying to tank or somebody like David, you know, the Dallas Mavericks who've already gotten disciplined, you know, said, well, wait a minute, if you're disciplining us, why aren't you disciplining them? You know, I, I assume somebody complained, and, and so Adam Silver, who I admire a great deal, has to come out and, you know, declare this or send a memo or something. But, like, so now the league is not just – forget the fact that they installed this crappy incentive structure, right? Forget that. Okay, now they're starting to legislate not just a general, hey, try to win, but you can't play that lineup. <laughs> like, like just, 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 this is where we're headed. They're going to start, like, legislating minutes for tanking teams. Never mind if they have a season that's too long, which is one of the reasons this all happens. Is because when you have 82 games, teams are out of it, 32 games. If you only had 60 games, they'd only be out of it for, like, you know, half the time. You know, so they've already created a situation where there are too many games and therefore you have two months of this nonsense, okay? Teams want to use it wisely as a way to develop their talent, which they have to have to use in the future. I mean, they're on the hook for Felicio. I mean, we can, again, question the wisdom of the, of the signing, but it's, it's a fact. The kid needs to learn how to play center. And right now, by every metric, he is one of the worst basketball players in the league. So, like, I think it's very wise to get him on the floor. Now, the fact is, you're going to put him on the floor, you're probably going to lose because he is terrible, but he's got to learn not to be terrible, and this is how it works. They've, given, they've created a situation that, it, that provides extended training camp for tanking teams because the season's too long. Okay, And then they're going to legislate how those teams allocate those minutes. It's not just enough to have the bad incentive structure in the season that's too long and the stupid you know, rules. It is now we're going to start micromanaging your lineup. I mean, this is why people become Tea Party Libertarians. That is why we started this conversation, because the fact that the NBA has reached this point is why I know the draft is done as we know it. I don't know if it's Do done. Do you really think so? I don't yeah, think it's done as I don't, we know it. I don't know if it's done next year. I think it's five years down the road. I think they'll try this new system. It won't work. But I think this— What you're saying is just the new system being just the new weighted, like yeah. getting rid of the weights? But this is the beginning. This when we when the draft is over and we go to the Zarin wheel because I don't think we're going to the Arnovitz free agency. Um, no, we aren't. When we go to the Zarin wheel, it will be this month of NBA life that is that was the started. This is it's this is it right here. The combination of the gambling talk the, uh, and being involved in that one percent. The combination of them having to legislate the, all the things you're talking about. I think it'll be four years from now. It has to. It's going to be that it happens again under the new system, and then they get rid of it and they go to the Zarin wheel. Uh, that would be my choice. I mean, look, of all the outcomes, I would like a Zarin wheel just because, though it doesn't address my fairness issue, it does. Um, it, it doesn't address the fairness thing. It does address at least the incentive structure, which is screwy. All right, that is Kevin Artovitz of ESPN. For those who do not know, the Zarin Wheel slots teams in certain areas on a five-year rotating basis so that you know going into a season you have a certain pick with those five other teams and then weighs it based on either lottery or schedule, depending how they do it. So you know that in this year yeah, you're having a And I'm a practice. I realize I'm not going to get what I want. If they can address one of these two issues, both fairness and the incentive structure, it's better than what currently exists. But, um, yeah, I, I just don't like – I just wish this league would just be honest about what's going on. It's like you're like you can't you can't have an, a bad incentive structure and then complain when people, you know, want to take advantage of it. Like you created the incentive, you don't like the behavior, change the incentive. Right, right. Kevin, appreciate it very much. Thanks so much for the time, my friend. 
Thanks for having me.